I need to start this morning by telling you about just giving a report of gratitude for one of the one of the most amazing moves of the Holy Spirit that I saw this week. I really haven't seen anything of this magnitude since I was in Nicaragua. And uh, it was so refreshing and so powerful. I think, as a lot of you know, that Franklin Graham was here uh, for a prayer rally on the State House uh, lawn this uh, Thursday. And uh, there were about 25 of us from the church here who met, uh, met here. And then we, we just drove to downtown Grove City. And we jumped on the 15 bus to take it downtown because deliver us right there, right? So it was so cool. Uh, we, 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 we met here, we got down there, and you could just kind of feel the excitement building with uh, those of us that were going. We were trying to get on the bus. So the bus pulls up, and there's nobody else on the bus except for one of the other vineyard families who got on the stop before. And so we're like, hey, and we're all going downtown for this. And so when we're all, it was like being on the church bus, a Coda bus that we had for ourselves. It was so incredible. And, we, and so there was just a lot of chatter. You can imagine how loud it was. Just these people just, we're all excited about going down to the rally and we're all excited to be together and not be at work. And it was it was just really neat. We're like kids on a field trip. Karen said she felt like she was on a mission trip on the bus. And there was just lots of really positive stuff. And so you could just feel the Holy Spirit building, couldn't you? You could just feel the Holy Spirit building in that bus and as we were going along. And then, of course, it stops because it wasn't just our bus. As it turns out, there are other people who were going other places who were standing there waiting for the regular ride downtown, right? And they'd get on and they'd pay their two bucks and they'd go, oh, well. (laughs) And it was probably a little bit intimidating at first to get on that bus, you know, and knowing they're just doing their thing. And here's all, it was so loud in there, just, and it was so cool and so full of the Holy Spirit. We stopped at this one stop and this gentleman older than me, I know, right? And this guy, he, he, he's wearing an, a suit, and he's got a Bible. It's a gray suit and a white shirt and tie. And he gets on the bus, and he comes back, and he sits by me. And I said, are you going to the prayer rally downtown? Because he just kind of had that look, you know? And, and, uh, and, and he said, yeah, that's where I'm going. I said, well, great. Well, it turns out in some conversation that he's a pastor of a little Baptist church here in Grove City. And he didn't know I was a pastor, which I'm always grateful for. I don't want any... That's just between us, right? Okay. And so that never came up. But, you know, it was just so, there was so much enthusiasm, so much power of the Holy Spirit on the bus that I could tell that this guy and I were probably approaching the same gospel a little differently because he was kind of talking about judgment on our nation and stuff like that, all of which, you know, is, there's a real thing to talk about, of course, the way our nation's going. But I could just tell from our conversation that he was on a different part of the of the different tribe, okay, than me. But it was fine. We were still connecting. We were still going to the same prayer rally, which was kind of the beauty of it, right? But then at some point, he said to me, he said, he said, well, what church are you guys from? And I said, well, we're from the vineyard. Have you ever heard of it? And he goes, yeah, I drive by it every day. Kind of quiet. And then he goes, then he goes, well, I have to say this. He says, I really am encouraged by the enthusiasm of all you people, he said. So that was a blessing. But that's just the beginning, right? 
So we're going along, and these people would stop at the regular stops, and somebody would get on, and they'd step on, and they'd go, whoa. And they, they, so they'd stand up there because it didn't look like there were any seats. You know what I mean? And plus, they didn't want to go any farther back there. And so I was sitting toward the back of the bus, and, I, I, and some of us would say, hey, we got seats back here. <laughs> Come on back. Come on back. And they'd go, okay, and kind of, you know, make their way back, and they'd sit down. And in absolutely every case, the Lord gave us grace with them, and we were able to talk with them, and in some cases, find out what's going on. And we actually prayed for a healing for three people, three strangers on the bus. And, and God was just moving. God was moving, and these people were saying, this is incredible. And it was just such a, just such a blessing to be. I was so, never so proud of our people. Can I say proud? You know how I mean that. I mean, not of my own strength, but just so happy to actually be the pastor of people, to just to see the way that everybody was just interacting with the power and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we got down there, and the best part for me, other than the bus ride, was the time before the rally actually started. Because, you know, you had several, right, Pat? There were like several thousand people joined there, and Chester and Marie and Sherry were, were volunteers down there and met them with their orange vests on and stuff, and all this is going on. But the anticipation of all these believers together, they all have different signs on their parking lots, right? They're different flavors of Christians. Didn't matter. Didn't make any difference. And we kept running into people from the vineyard down there so that like in addition to the 25 or so of us on the bus, there were that many more down there that we ran into. And so there were sort of us pockets around and mixed in with the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and... You know, but nobody cared. Nobody was showing their membership cards. And there was just a sense of anticipation. Who was there? I mean, right, am, I, am I telling the truth, right? I mean, for me, for me, the high point was way before the rally even started. Because the Holy Spirit was there. Holy Spirit was there. I said to one person before it started, I said, I think this is what heaven's going to be like. Because there was a guy out there with his guitar, and he was just playing some hillbilly stuff, you know, and we're singing along, and, and like everybody was just singing. Because nobody cared that we do ours on the wall, and some of them are off the wall. <laughs> I mean, they use books. It was a beautiful thing. Patricia, wasn't it? It was a beautiful thing. It was, Pat, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that bus ride amazing? Wow. It was just crazy. We are just connecting with people. God made it so easy for me with one guy because he's wearing a Michigan hat. <laughs> it was such, such a slow pitch, right? I mean, and he comes in, I'm like, hey, go blue, man, you know, and Next thing you know, I know his name. I know that he was in a bad car accident. That's why he had a cane and that he had screws and plates in his hip. And, and I said, well, you know, one of the ways we like to pray for people is to see if God will heal you. Would that be okay? He's like, yeah. And, and it was just like a revival on the bus. That's the second time it's happened for me on a bus since Nicaragua. You realize that, right? We got to get a bus. 
It was awesome. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was there. Holy Spirit. The presence, the manifest presence of God was there. That's it. Which is where we're going this morning in stop number 26 in our Through the Bible. As we think about Joel. We're all the way up to Joel. where Joel talked about this enormous paradigm shift that occurred because of someone who came to die for our sins. Who was that? Jesus Christ. He talks about this huge, that it was used to be this way, now it's that way. It's called a paradigm shift. You know what a paradigm is? Go ahead, Pat. Come on. 20 cents, right. Okay. Did you get that? It's a paradigm. Paradigm. I was, that's so, such a slow pitch, and you didn't swing. I, yeah. <laughs> you don't normally seem to mind that kind of reaction with the stuff you tell. We're just having, you guys got anything to do, go ahead, because Pat and I are just having us a time here. Paradigm is a way of worldview. It's a way of looking at something, and when it shifts, it makes an incredible change from one thing to another. It's like the old is somehow not the same thing anymore. It's something that's brand new. And the prophet Joel talks about an incredible paradigm shift, and we're living on the other side of it. And he talks about it in his scripture. So let's go through this the way we have the other through the Bible. Let's start with the context of the book of Joel. Context, paradigm shift, way of looking at something. What do you see when you look at it? Do you see this or do you see that? And it's a paradigm shift. And we talk about the context of it. The date of the book of Joel is arguable. Not really sure what we're going to say about because Some scholars will argue that it was before the Babylonian exile, remember? And some will say it was after. The trouble with the book of Joel in this respect is that there are no real internal clues in there that say, remember with Hosea, he talked about King Uzziah, which Isaiah also talked about. And so when they reference a king or somebody who they were contemporary with, then, then we can put a fix a date. Well, we can't really do that with the book of Joel, so we don't know if it was before the Babylonian exile or after for sure. Some will say, well, I've read the book of Joel, and it talks about this great plague of locusts. Couldn't we fix the date on that by looking at archaeology and stuff and see when was there a great plague of locusts? Well, it turns out in those days it was not uncommon for the locusts to come through and eat everything because that was before DDT, right? And so they really didn't have any choice but just to hope it wasn't too bad. And so we can't really do it that way. And with respect to the, the locusts in the book of Joel, some, uh, some people have interpreted this allegorically and some have interpreted it eschatologically. Say, what? Okay, bigger words than I usually use. Allegorically means, an allegory, as most of you, I'm sure, realizes, it's like a story about something else. It's not necessarily about that. And some say that the book of Joel and the plague of locusts is an allegory about the judgment of God. And so it's really not about actual locusts, they would say. They, some people do the same thing with, like, the book of Jonah. They would say it's just simply an allegory, that really there was no Jonah, there was no great fish, but that it's an allegory, it's, a, it's a, an inspired story about, um, about that you can't outrun God, right? And it's true that you can't outrun God, um, but I, 
I am a person who lives on the way conservative end of Bible interpretation, and I think that there actually was a great fish, and there was a guy named Jonah, and he was puked up onto the shores of Nineveh and said the things he said. So for me, I, I, when, I, when I read the Bible, I always start with, if that's what it says, then that's what happened. I don't want to start playing footloose and fancy free, because where do you stop that, right? Well, it didn't really mean that. It meant that. Why? Because that's what I think. That sounds dangerous as, as on the surface, doesn't it? So, um, allegorically, some, some people interpret the book of Joel that way. Eschatologically, eschatology is a fancy church word for the study of Jesus coming back, basically. The study of last things. Did you know Jesus is coming back? I mean, did you know that? I'm surprised we're still here. Every week, I'm surprised we're still here. He's coming back. He's coming back for those who bear his name. He's coming back for the church, the bride of Christ that he's purified with his own blood. He's coming back for us. Jesus is coming back. Got to get hold of that. Got to get hold of that. That's what eschatology is. It's the study of things that have to do with that. Some people interpret the book of Joel eschatologically, meaning they say it's, there's really a lot of stuff in there that deals with those last times. I mean, the fact that it's referred to in the book of Revelation and the plague of locusts is, is something that gives, gives fuel for that fire. I think there's reason to really believe this, that the book of Joel came after the exile, and I believe that it's eschatological in nature. I really do. I think that it tells about a coming age. I think it tells about a coming age. Now, um, one of the things that you'll notice is that in the, in the New Testament, has anybody been reading their Bible? Four of you. Uh, when you read your Bible, you're going to discover, you're going to see things in the Old Testament book of Joel that show up in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, anybody get there? This really cool thing happens. So the, the, the church is this brand new infant thing. Jesus died for their sins, for our sins, and there's this brand new church. And Jesus does fulfill something, and he pours out his Holy Spirit. People start speaking in tongues, and in that case, they were speaking human languages they had never learned, so that there were all these foreigners listening, and they were hearing the gospel in their own language, and they're going like, mind-blower. And God did that in Acts chapter 2. And so they start asking the obvious question, what's going on here? They said, are you guys drunk? Oh, I don't know how much juice you have to drink to start speaking a language you've never learned before. I think drinking actually in my history was always caused me to have more trouble speaking the one language that I knew. It's been a month. Listen to me. Listen to me. So the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. They said, what's going on? And then if you read it, one of the things, Peter stands up and he says, here's what's going on. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only 9 in the morning. And he said, we don't start drinking until later. (laughs) I love that little reference, only 9 in the morning. And he said, well, what you're seeing here is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, where it says, and after this I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions on all flesh, both men and women. I'll pour out my spirit. And so Acts Acts chapter 2 references Joel as a fulfillment. 
And so I think if you look at the book of Joel as a prophecy toward the church age and a prophecy toward the coronation of Christ, that is that Jesus is coming. You know, there were like five or six hundred years in between probably when he said these words and the people had to wait. Can you imagine waiting five centuries for something and just believing that you have, between the Testaments, between the last page of the Old Testament and the New Testament is at least 400 years. Can you imagine being part of that generation where nothing fresh was coming and you just had to rely on what the parents learned from their parents, from their parents, from their parents, and looking forward to the day when it probably wouldn't come in your lifetime? That's tough when you have a hunger for God. That's pretty tough stuff. But it's also, the book of Joel is also referenced in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. There's a place in Joel where it says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's part of the paradigm shift. You used to have to be born a Jew or be what they called proselytized into the Jewish family through a proselyte baptism in order to become a Jew. You, and, and you couldn't just call on the name of the Lord as we have and be saved. And, and Paul uses that in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. In Revelation 9, the apostle John refers to this great plague of locusts as part of, is that Armageddon, or you know so much more about this? What's happening in 9 there, Pat? Is that pre-Armageddon? But there's some kind of an onset of, of war, uh, some kind of an, uh, where these locusts come, and these locusts could be a description of even military equipment. It would have looked, that's all the words they would have had if they saw in a, a Black Hawk helicopter. They would have said, I don't look like locusts. It had these eyes, and it had, these, had wings in the front and wings in the back, and it flew, and it devoured everything in its path, and they would have had no, no other words for it. But what I want to show you is that in context, the book of Joel is alive in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled substantially in the New Testament. The main points, the mains, if you will, of this paradigm shift of moving from one thing to the other is really about a, the plague of locusts. You like that one? The plague of locusts and also... A national fast is the other main point. So fasting. You know what fasting is? It's not the opposite of slowing. It's, it's going without food for spiritual purposes. It's going without food for, because you feel like God has called you to go without food for something. Now there are two kinds of fasts in the Bible. There is a fast of repentance, and then the second kind is a fast of drawing near to God. And now when Jesus talked about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about the second kind. Because he said, when you fast, don't put the ashes on your face and show everybody you're fasting and go, oh, I'm fasting, I'm so hungry for Jesus. Right? Don't do that. He said, in fact, do the opposite. That the only people who should know that you're fasting or need to know people because you're not showing up for meals. Right? And he said, instead, wash your face, put on your party clothes, and go. And he says, and then God, who sees what you're doing secretly, will reward you openly. That's what Jesus said. And remember when the disciples couldn't cast the demons out of that kid, and and they came along and said, how come we couldn't do it? And Jesus said, well, this kind only comes out with much prayer and what? Fasting. Because in fasting, we can draw into a place with the Father where we receive power, where we receive authority to do things, to be in a zone that we'll be ineffective in otherwise. So that's that second kind of fasting that Jesus talked about. In the book of Joel, he's calling a national fast. This is a fast of repentance. This is, and what they would do is they would t- 
tear their clothes. They would, they would put ashes on their face, on their heads, ashes from the fire. And they would go without food. And this would be like, oh God, we repent of our sins. Some of you have been there spiritually at some point in your life, haven't you? You've just been so undone by the weight of your own sin. I have, where I just fell before God. And I didn't put actual ashes on, but it was like, tear my clothes. But when you, when you understand a national fast, and then listen to the words of Jesus, who said, when you fast, don't put ashes on your face. I have some, that there's a paradigm shift. We don't fast for repentance anymore. We fast to draw near to God. That's a huge difference. We don't fast for repentance anymore. Jesus said, don't do it that way anymore. He said, when you fast, it's like prayer. He said, go into your closet and do it in secret because you'll be drawing close to the Father and stuff will happen that will blow your mind. That's what he's talking about. The hot spot for today, and and Joel, if you're new here, what I like to do in this Through the Bible series is just look for a place to kind of settle down in, a, in, in a one whole book, is Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it starts by saying, And afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my Spirit in those days. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. What a powerful thing he's saying there. He starts by saying, and afterwards something will happen. After what? I'd interpret this as after Christ. After Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. Jesus said there was going to be a shift when he came. That things would be different afterwards. Jesus said, i got to leave now. He said to his disciples, I must go. But it's good that I go because if I go, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And so that's what this is the fulfillment of. Jesus died on the cross for you historically. Jesus is not still on the cross. Jesus is not still on the cross. Jesus was victorious over the cross. Jesus is not still on the cross. Don't let anybody hold that image over your head of a continually dying Savior. He died, Hebrews says, once and for all, and His blood speaks for all eternity. The cross is empty. Better news than that, the tomb's empty. And I want you to get hold of that. So Jesus died, and, and there was a change. Something changed. After that, He says, I'll pour out My Spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. And in this place... There's a fundamental, fundamental paradigm shift. He's saying, I'm going to pour out my what? Spirit. What spirit are we talking about? Holy Spirit. There's only one spirit. There's the Holy Spirit in this regard. There's only one Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is throughout the whole Bible. How many of you came in here thinking that the Holy Spirit was born on the day of Pentecost? All right. Well, that can't be true because... The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, so they caused her to bear the child Jesus. So he must have been around then, right? Well, when did the Holy Spirit start? How far into the Bible do you have to read to find the Holy Spirit? Dos verses. If I could say verses in Spanish, I'd say it. 
Two verses. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says that the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then it said, God said, let there be light. Well, God is the Holy Spirit. God has forever existed as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't, like, evolve into that. God has forever existed as the Trinity. In the book of Colossians, it says that Jesus was active in the, in the creation. It says nothing has been made that wasn't made by him. So in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit moving. Now, the Holy Spirit is the only, only encounter with God any of us have ever had. Have you seen the Father? Have you seen the Son? No. The only people that have ever, ever saw the Son were those select people who happened to be on the earth at the time that Jesus was here, God in the flesh, right? Those are the only, those are the only people in all history, before and after Jesus, who encountered God in any way other than the Holy Spirit. You know, there's this weird thing going on in American Christian culture that the Holy Spirit is sort of like optional equipment, you know? Oh, you're a Holy Spirit church! There's no other kind of church! There's no church apart from the Holy Spirit. There's no church. It's not a church. It can be a gathering of religious people, but it's not a church unless it's born by the Spirit. Are you hearing me? There was a huge paradigm shift that occurred. And Joel talks about it. And he says it went from being selective to being pervasive. You know, prior to Jesus Christ, only a select few people really encountered God by the Holy Spirit, right? Have you read your Old Testament? So you had the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were bumping into God, and you had Noah, and people like that who were bumping into God. And you had prophets, they were encountering God. You had priests, they were encountering God. You had a few kings who encountered God. But rank-and-file people like you and me, they weren't encountering God. They were counting on the priests to go into the tabernacle and then the temple, into the Holy of Holies, check on things in the Ark of the Covenant mercy seat, come back out, hope they get out alive, and say, he's still there. And then all of us would have had to go, oh, that's good, that's a relief. And yet we had this hunger for God. But we had to rely on somebody else to do that for us. That's called a priest. There was a fundamental paradigm shift that occurred when Jesus Christ died on the cross. The book of Hebrews says that he was the priest after the order of Melchizedek, so we don't need a priest anymore. You don't have to rely on what somebody else is saying about God. You're meant to have your own encounter with the living God. It went from selective to pervasive. If you look at this passage... And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on what? All flesh. All people. And then he says something radical. He says, your sons will prophesy. Is that what it says? What does it say? Your sons and what? Whoa. This would have been a radical thing to say in a patriarchal age. that say women are going to be on the same spot with respect to the Holy Spirit. Have you been reading your Old Testament? It's mostly about the guys, isn't it? You have a, you know, a woman who encountered the Holy Spirit, at least by the record of the Old Testament, was an unusual, unique, and uh, exceptional woman. She was Ruth, she was Deborah, she was Esther. 
But the Old Testament speaks of very few women in comparison who encountered the Holy Spirit compared to vast numbers of men, right? And so when this says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, that was a huge paradigm shift. That ticks some people off. But Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, he said, did you know that in Christ there's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female? That we're all one before the cross of Jesus Christ. So what happened was the Holy Spirit by Christ switched from being you know, selective where these few experienced it to pervasive. I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Keep reading. It says, even on my servants, both, verse 29, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. You know, we have equal access. We have equal access to God. My whole role here is not to be a priest. My whole role is to be a servant. I just on the bottom of the pile here washing more feet than anybody else. That's my whole role is just to keep your feet clean enough to get you moving toward God. It's a stinky job sometimes. <laughs> but it's great. It's a great honor to be called to the bottom of the pile. I'm not on the top of the pile. I'm not the leader of the church. Stop trying to make me the leader of the church. I refuse. Jesus Christ is the leader of the church. I get to be the chief footwasher. Get hold of that. It makes a difference in how you think of me and even what I, when I bring the word to you. I'm just washing your feet. You haven't been disappointed by me yet? You haven't been here long enough. (laughs) Stick around. Also, the big paradigm shift is it went from occasional visitations of God to continuous manifestations. In verse 28, he says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That's a manifestation. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. That troubles me a little bit. Hey, Don, are we dreamers or visionaries? (laughs) I think maybe we've crossed the line. I don't know. It's interesting how a young man can dream or have visions. It's, it's interesting. I was reflecting on this this week, how much easier it was as a younger man to be a visionary, have a vision for the church. And now I just dream that we'll step up into the vision that's already been given to us. You know, we've got, we got a full space, empty space ahead of us. Uh, you don't need me to envision farther you need me to dream and have faith that we'll come into the place that God has already envisioned for us. It's a wonderful thing. But it went from being, uh, you know, occasional visitations to continuous manifestations. Jesus said in John fourteen twelve that whoever believes in me will do what I've been doing. He said, he'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. You'll be doing it all the time. You know, the Old Testament, you got... You got the big moments, of course, you got the Red Sea and you got the flood and you got Mount Moriah and you've got, you know, Mount Carmel. You've got these big moments along the way where God showed up in the nick of time. In the New Testament, it's it's something's wrong if he's not there, if he's not showing up. So that's the big paradigm shift. And it all has to do with the Holy Spirit. I got a whole other half of this message that I'm not going to give you. Because I think the Holy Spirit just wants to come. You want my plan or his? Good answer. 
Can you just open yourself up and welcome the Holy Spirit? Get the band to come up. And can you just, yeah, just put your stuff down for a sec if you want. And can you just get to a place in your life, in your moment right now, where you just say, I believe God wants to, wants to come. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Your church, your people, you are the leader, you are the shepherd. God, thank you for all these feet. Thank you, God. I never thought in my life I'd have so many feet. I thank you for every one of them, and I thank you for the ones that are especially dirty. I thank you for those. I thank you for the clean ones too, Lord. I thank you for those who have learned how to walk in Heinz places, as the scripture says, and high paths. I thank you for the ones you've shown the way out of the muck and the mire, and you've washed them. And I'm just thinking about Peter when you went to wash his feet, and he said, no, I don't want to do that. And you said to him, a man who's had a bath only needs to have his feet washed. You've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now just let me in the Spirit wash your feet. Just let me in the Spirit. I'm not going to come around. Just let me in the Spirit wash your feet as your brother. You know when we have a potluck here, Karen and I, we hardly ever eat. We like it that way. We never go to the head of the line because we're the pastor and his wife. We just like to talk to you in line and in the spirit we're just washing your feet. We're just loving on you guys. Because you're amazing. Just let me wash your feet for a minute in the spirit. Just let me come up to you as your brother pastor and just bow down before you and take the bowl, take the towel, You don't ever have to be afraid to show me the dirt on your feet. Your dirt might be different, but your feet are no dirtier than mine were. Nobody's. You don't ever have to hide the dirt here. Holy Spirit, come. Come.